Hello, and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational and interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is PA Michael Sharma, and I practice emergency medicine and urgent care in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Martha Roberts, emergency medicine NP and assistant professor in Northern California. We have a very special podcast for you today. We're going to have two additional views, an oblique view and uh, maybe a sunrise view uh, from some informed, strong, and perhaps even conflicting views on some very heavy topics you need to consider before your next shift. We have the founder of the Center for Medical Education and the co-director of our original emergency medicine bootcamp and so much more with Dr. Rick Bucata, which will also be supplemented by some interesting feedback from Dr. Jim Roberts. Yeah, I looked up some unusual x-ray views last night. We're going to give Jim the flamingo Ah, view. Okay, the flamingo view for our Florida Jim Roberts here. So Mike, before we hit record today, we are talking about how things, um, excuse me, before we actually started recording, I should say, we were talking about how things have really turned a corner um, about COVID, right? That one, it's officially summer. Two, COVID-19 vaccinations are approved for children six months to five years old. And three, the bootcamp faculty has finalized our presentations and we're ready to go for our July course at the end of the month. And- we're super excited. We get to go to Vegas. Yes, it is the first, the finest, often imitated, never duplicated. It is the heavyweight champion of the world, the original emergency medicine boot camp, July 20th through 31st. This is the core emergency medicine content that you need to be a stellar emergency medicine and urgent care clinician. Yeah, and we got those pre-course workshops too, pharmacology, ultrasound procedures. And that runs July 26th and 22nd, excuse me, 26th and 27th. There you, go. you know, I'm actually trying to gear up for four weekend night shifts again, by the way. Um, so I've been doing a weird sleep schedule. So sometimes my, my brain and my mouth don't really match up. Um, so some might say, uh, Mike, that it is too late. It is too late to come to the boot camp. And what would you tell them? No, it's not too late. Listen, you know, right now, you get on your emergency department or urgent care clinic, your iMessage group, your WhatsApp or your group me or whatever else. You tell your colleagues, hey, I have to go to boot camp in July. Let's swap some shifts. It's time to get serious. You know what? You quit your job if you have to and you come to Vegas for boot camp. Rick Bucata will pay your bills if you quit your job <laughs> and come to boot camp. Okay. That's that, okay. Yeah. I'm, that, I'm sorry. I probably went too far on that one. That, that's a huge lie. He's Rick's not doing any of that. <laughs> okay. So okay. Know. Fine. Okay. All right. Have we so, asked him? <laughs> the answer, trust me, is no. Okay. Um, <laughs> don't quit your job, but still come to boot camp, and we'd love to have you. So, um, if you're already coming, we can't wait to see you come. Introduce yourself. <coughs> Excuse me, Mike. And we also would love to see you for our advanced boot camp in August, August 23rd through 25th. So do it now. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Right. That advanced course only comes once a year. So you really don't want to miss that one. And then there's a December edition of the original boot camp. You will not legally be able to get into the Las Vegas pools in December, but it's still a great time, December 13th through 16th. Yeah. So wait, um, legally, what did you, what? Huh? Uh, I'll just say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and leave it at that. <laughs> my, my attorneys would probably appreciate that. Oh, good God, Mike. Now let's do some bread and butter emergency medicine and urgent care before we get into the heavy stuff. 
let's talk acute infectious conjunctivitis, a pretty common occurrence, especially when respiratory illnesses are really rocking a community. The Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, just released an interesting systematic review and meta-analysis, or SIRMA, about acute infectious conjunctivitis. I've got it right here. They searched 65 years worth of articles about conjunctivitis, eventually coming up with 32 studies to include in the analysis. I think it confirms the way a lot of us like practice. Like We don't know we, like why you practice this way, but it, it kind of confirms the way a lot of us practice. But I still learned some stuff in my reading of the SIRMA and kind of researching adjacent topics. It also mentions one presentation of bacterial conjunctivitis I don't think a lot of us consider and probably miss more than we know. Yeah, so here's the scenario. An adult patient comes in concerned about their red eye that's been going on for about 12 hours. It's not really bothering them, but everybody at work is freaked out about it and told them to go get it checked out. Yeah, we've always got those good friends. Let's say that you rule out all other reasons for a red eye and you're left with either viral or bacterial conjunctivitis. And the patient says, look, I've already paid enough for this visit. If the eyes okay, and it's just going to get better. We can just skip the medications. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I, I hate eye drops. Right. So um, here are some things that might point you towards why they can skip the eye drops or other antibiotics. Here are some factors that when present are associated with viral conjunctivitis with a high likelihood ratio and a very narrow confidence interval, which is a good thing. Okay. It makes you very confident in the results here. So the presence of pharyngitis, associated with viral conjunctivitis. That makes sense. We know about that. How, you know, you put your, basically you're taking your cold in your throat and you touch your mouth and you touch your eye, you put it in your eye. You can also have preauricular lymphadenopathy. That is associated with a high degree of confidence with your viral conjunctivitis. And also contact with somebody else with a red eye. Now, the absence of mucopurulent ocular discharge. So if they don't have a purulent discharge, that's also associated with a higher likelihood of a viral conjunctivitis, a watery serous discharge, a thinnest, thinner discharge that's more associated with a viral conjunctivitis. Right. So let's switch to bacterial conjunctivitis here. The absence of pharyngitis made the likelihood of bacterial conjunctivitis higher. The presence of mucopurulent ocular discharge and otitis media were more associated with increased likelihood of bacterial conjunctivitis. Otitis media. Mike, when you see a red eye, how often are you wondering about a red eardrum? You know, probably not enough. It takes seconds. It's easy, but I, I just need to get better at checking ears and looking for this conjunctivitis otitis syndrome. 25% of patients with this syndrome, which just like it sounds, they'll have a red eye and a red eardrum, they may not even have ear pain. So don't rely on the patient volunteering that they have ear pain to prompt you to look in their ear. These patients need oral, not ophthalmic antibiotics and an antibiotic that is beta lactamase resistant. So quick biochemistry reminder, some common bacteria produce an enzyme called beta lactamase inactivate certain antibiotics by destroying their beta-lactam ring structure. As a response, humans created antibiotics that resist that beta-lactamase enzyme. Amoxicillin with clavulanic acid, trade name Augmentin, is a great first choice. 
Yeah. So remember to ask about contact lens use and diabetes. These things increase the risk of pseudomonas infections in the eye. And these patients with acute infectious conjunctivitis should be prescribed something with activity against that. This is a good time to use fluoroquinolones. You will not get the side effects we were worried about with fluoroquinolones when they're used as eye drops. Thankfully, they're cheaper than they used to be. Remind patients about prescription saving cards, good RX. That's a good one. And uh, when you use those, uh, levofloxacin, levofloxacin, Again, brains not matching up with my mouth today. Drops are still pretty pricey. The average cost is about $50 and can be found as low as $32. God, that's still a lot though, Mike. No, it's a lot, but here, read on. You know, we've got some good options here. Yeah, so thankfully you can also, you put some options in here, use ofloxacin and ciprofloxacin for pseudomonas conjunctivitis. Ofloxacin average cost $10, can be found as low as $3. Three dollars and ciprofloxacin average cost fifteen dollars can be found as low as ten dollars. Now, what if the patient's allergic to fluoroquinolones, but you still want pseudomonas coverage? I say that's I, an anno- that's a really annoying patient. Yeah, exactly. So, allergic to fluoroquinolones, um, NSAIDs, tramadol, morphine, only dilaudid helps. Anyways, the location uh, east, <clears throat> right? The, the sun. Know, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever prescribed tobramycin eye drops, but they are another first-line option against pseudomonas. And check this out. Priced with a prescription saver card at an average of $10 and can be found as low, at least in my area, as a buck twenty-five. Boom. Definitely something I'm going to be prescribing more of now that I know the affordability of tobramycin. And, uh, you know, remember also the possibility of gonorrheal and chlamydial infections of the eye. Coverage for that is similar to coverage for gonorrheal and chlamydial infections of other parts of the body. In our show notes, we're going to have a link to a previous podcast where we go over the 2021 updated CDC guidelines for the treatment of STDs. You can find a link to the full guidelines as well as a free handy-dandy printable pocket guide. It is part of my everyday carry in the ED Martha fashioned hers into a purse-looking thing with a fabulous gold chain. Did I, uh, you know, so, <laughs> did I send you one of those or did you no, make your own? You, no, I mean, you didn't send me the gold chain one. I, I am envious of it. I saw your picture of it and I really wanted to do something like it. Uh, but no, I just use, um, you know, binder clips for mine. It, that purse gets me all the dates. Anyway, <laughs> one last interesting tidbit that the authors mentioned based on admittedly limited evidence. Bacterial conjunctivitis seems to be more common than viral conjunctivitis in kids, but viral conjunctivitis is more common in adults. In the end, the authors state that there was no single symptom or sign that differentiates the two conditions with high certainty. Garden variety bacterial conjunctivitis usually goes away on its own. This is based on a Cochrane review of treating bacterial conjunctivitis with antibiotics versus placebo, but the authors still recommend prescription of antibiotics with bacterial conjunctivitis is suspected. The goal there is to resolve symptoms a few days sooner and limit the spread of the infection. So that's great. Kids need to go back to school too, right? People need to go back to work. So let's begin um, thinking about some of those other medications that we can give. Think about the cost of those particular drugs. And let's bring it back around to our case study patient. The adult patient has a red eye. You've ruled out bad reasons for the red eye. You're trying to distinguish between a bacterial and viral conjunctivitis. On careful history and exam, the patient endorses upper respiratory symptoms and her partner's having some red eyes as well. You appreciate a preauricular lymph node and watery discharge. They deny contact 
lens use and a history of diabetes, and they prefer not to deal with eye drops. So you tell the patient between their history and physical exam, everything is pointing towards a viral infection. So lucky for them, eye drops are probably not needed. However, you counsel them that it's difficult to tell for sure, so you're going to prescribe them antibiotics. Based on their allergy profile, you pick between either uh, you know, polymyxin B and trimethoprim, that's polytrim is the trade name drops, or erythromycin ointment. Those are two great um, kind of garden variety eye antibiotics when you're not concerned about pseudomonas. So you, you prescribe it for them, but you tell them it's safe to not fill the prescription for now. They can wait and see how things go. And if things start pointing towards more of a bacterial infection, like say the onset of a more mucopurulent discharge, they can start the prescription. Or if they're not sure or having other weird new symptoms, they can just come back to the ER for evaluation. Now, all those things we talked about today, whether it's a link to our old podcast, it's the Surma from JAMA, it's the Cochrane Reviews article, all these things are going to be on our website. That is twoview.fireside.fm. It is always the number two view.fireside.fm. Speaking of two, let's move on to segment two. Let's discuss care of the patient who's presenting after a sexual assault. This is a tough subject uh, mentally and physically for our patient. Martha, you want to jump in here? Sounds like you have something to say real quick. Well, you know, I just really, we we cover a lot of topics on the two view and uh, we do have to, I don't want to say, um, I just want to take the edge off of some of these topics. They're really, they're heavy, but we also want to give them the respect that they deserve. Um, so we, we will talk about uh, that in a moment, but you know, this is, this is not an easy segment. So we're just putting a little disclaimer out there that sometimes this can be difficult to listen to, um, and, and deal with both as a patient and as a clinician. Right. It's all the more reason to kind of talk about it in a setting like this ahead of time. So you can think through how you're going to handle it um, and, and what you're going to potentially feel when this happens. We are going to talk about uh, evidence from the CDC, their recommendations and how to treat the post-sexual assault patient. And then you can decide what you can do to help the patient uh, to do. Right. So we've put the three best links, we think right now, if you just want to quick, go take a look at those for everything you need to know in our liner notes in regards to this subject. And that's um, covering post uh, exposure prophylaxis and some of the other medications we're going to talk about. Let's start by introducing the hypothetical patient, the one who comes into your ER needing treatment for unprotected sex that was also assault. First and foremost, ruling out sexual assault is crucial and asking those important questions, both male and female, involving a specialized SANE or sexual assault nurse expert to do this is 100% the right answer every time if rape is anywhere in that question or any other kind of assault or battery. Um, they do their own thing, These uh, the SANE group. They're certified, they're trained, they do pelvic exams, rectal exams, penile exams, skin exams. They administer needed PEP or post-exposure prophylaxis. Right. The first few things you should do on your end is draw some baseline labs on the patient, including things like HIV, the different hepatitises, and also get an HCG blood pregnancy test to ensure the patient was not already pregnant. You hear us kind of, um, you know, going towards these blood tests because, you know, urinating or other samples collected from the genitals that can kind of 
um, affect what the SANE nurse does. And so um, that's why you want to go with blood tests for these ones. Um, now, it's tricky. If this was an assault case, um, whether you obtain swabs for trichomonas, gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, you might want to do that, or you might honestly probably better to leave it for the SANE uh, nurse to handle if, if that's a thing that you have in your area. Okay, Mike, you will be offering plan B or the morning after pill, as some call it to the patient. Plan B is a trademarked drug as levonorgestrel, 1.5 milligrams. It's a single time dose medication and usually available in most ERs. Side note, there are many types of this drug on the market and the patient doesn't necessarily have to go to the ER to get them. In fact, they may have already taken it before they see you. Also, in fact, Uber delivers. Plan B medications in general are a single or two-time dose medication. The drug acts primarily by stopping the release of an egg from the ovary. It may prevent a sperm from fertilizing the egg. If fertilization does occur, Plan B may prevent a fertilized egg from attaching to the womb or implantation. If a fertilized egg is implanted prior to taking Plan B, Plan B will not work. It should also be taken within 12 to 72 hours of unprotected or unwanted sexual encounters to be effective. I want to acknowledge that there is a segment of our population who's listening that may feel uncomfortable with advising a patient to take plan B. For many of you, it's a no-brainer, but for others, because of the possibility that it could prevent a fertilized egg from attaching to the uterine wall or other reasons, this could be viewed as the pill inducing an elective abortion. Full disclosure, I have never prescribed hormones for the primary purposes of contraception. However, I've also never let a patient who came to me seeking help with contraception to leave the clinic that day without connecting them with someone who would help them that day to get contraception. I have never and will not ever put myself in a practice or a setting where I'm the only person standing in between, so to speak, a patient and contraception it's a very complicated moral issue for many. I think the full discussion of it is well outside the scope of this podcast. If you have moral issues with discussing plan B at all with your patient, I want to offer the two of you cast inbox as a place to have more of a discussion about that. That is two viewcast at gmail.com, the number two viewcast at gmail.com. In my personal opinion, with plan B being an over-the-counter medication, like Martha said, even if a clinician were to have a moral objection of prescribing contraception, I do feel there are morally acceptable ways to have the conversation, to inform the patient about the availability of this drug that happens to be out there that the patient can choose to obtain on their own without a prescriber's involvement or endorsement. It's purely information. Let's just run through some of that post-sexual assault exposure uh, prophylaxis medication for a minute. If the patient is there and is concerned about all STDs and all the other infections they could get from the uh, sexual encounter, this is what we can do for them according to the CDC. And this can apply to both male and female patients with some slight differences between them. Right. So I think this is really great information in general, even for a lay person that listens to our podcast. There are a few that are in the non-medical field, our mothers included. <laughs> So, and what's up, Brian, by the way? I know you're out there. Thanks, Brian, for listening. <laughs> so trichomonas, BV, 
gonorrhea and chlamydia are the most frequently diagnosed infections among women who have been sexually assaulted. Such conditions are prevalent among this population on our planet, and detection of these infections after assault does not necessarily imply acquisition during the assault. However, a post-assault examination presents an important opportunity for identifying or preventing an STI or STD. Chlamydial or gonococcal infections among women are of particular concern because of the possibility of an ascending infection, something that goes higher up into our system, of course. In addition, um, a hepatitis infection can be prevented through post-exposure vaccination, and we have good literature on this topic because uh, people who have been sexually assaulted also are at risk for requiring HPV infection. The efficacy of HPV vaccine is high also. The HPV vaccine is also recommended for females and males through the age of 26 years. Yeah, I just learned that, Mike. I thought that was fascinating. It's right there on the CDC website. Reproductive aged female survivors should be evaluated for pregnancy and offered emergency contraceptive. That is what is uh, suggested by the CDC. And that would, of course, be our plan B or morning after pill regimen. In terms of infectious control, the CDC is clear that once you be given, um, you're basically, before any tests come back, you're giving a broad empiric regimen to cover chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas for women, and in men, chlamydia and gonorrhea. Uh, and then we've already discussed the emergency contraception um, topic as well, and you can consider that too if the assault could result in a pregnancy in the assault victim. Post-exposure hepatitis B vaccination, if the hepatitis status of the assailant is unknown and the survivor has not been previously vaccinated, that's something else to consider as well. You know, like healthcare workers, we kind of like take it for granted. We have like hepatitis B, hepatitis C vaccinations here, but not all lay people have those things. So um, victims who are previously vaccinated against hepatitis B, but did not receive any sort of post-vaccination like testing for like titers and stuff to see if their vaccination took, so to speak, should receive a single vaccine booster dose in house. So again, take a look at the HPV vaccination recommendations that we mentioned, and then also recommendations for HIV PEP. Um, They're often made on a case by case basis, according to risk. And this gets a bit tricky. Um, they're going to need more vaccines beyond your visit, essentially. So, Mike, why don't you tell us the drugs that are suggested for our post-sexual assault patient, both for men and women? Yeah, I'll speak pretty broadly because we covered this pretty hard in a previous episode. We'll link to that in the show notes, or you can just kind of scroll through what you got in your podcatcher for our episodes. Ceftriaxone is in a cover against gonorrhea. Doxycycline will take care of chlamydia. Metronidazole is what you're going to be giving for trichomonas. Um, real interesting controversy, I guess not controversy, but just like discussion about doxycycline, right? If we're concerned about pregnancy, what do we give there? Um, I think we may have talked on the last podcast about this, that doxycycline does not seem to have the same teeth staining and other side effects that tetracycline used to like that's what we were concerned about giving doxy and mm-hmm. pregnant patients because you know right now the recommendation for the cdc is to give azithromycin for pregnant patients but for non-pregnant it's doxycycline so um let's say you don't know or you're not sure 
Uh, don't be too afraid of the doxycycline dosing, et cetera, will be in the uh, website uh, uh, that uh, the, the episode that we talk about in the show notes. Just click on our show notes to view.fireside.fm. Important to know the 2021 guidelines are different than even just a few years ago. Yeah. And clinicians should also counsel uh, people, patients regarding the possible benefits and toxicities associated with any of these treatments, Mike, um, GI effects. Uh, yeah, I mean, these meds do not go without side effects. And the emotional aspect of all this can be really hard for patients to process. It's a very sensitive situation. Follow up on all these patients is key. You have to plug them in. And their crappy journey doesn't end with you in the ER that night and uh, with just some ceftriaxone and some doxy. I'm going to highlight one that I took care of recently is a patient who came in uh, red as a beet and they were out in the sun and they were taking doxycycline this time for pneumonia. And so that sun exposure on doxy is a real bummer. And it's important they be counseled to avoid sun exposure, especially in these summer months here. Mm -hmm. More from the CDC after the initial post-assault exam, whether it's from us or from the SANE nurse, follow-up exams provide the opportunity to detect new infections acquired during or after the assault to complete hepatitis B and your human papillomavirus vaccinations if indicated to complete counseling and treatment for other STIs. Sometimes they'll be resistant to what you give them on the first-line treatment and monitor for side effects, adherence to any sort of other post-exposure prophylaxis, maybe if you're doing that for HIV, if prescribed. If initial testing was performed, follow-up evaluation on those results of the blood tests you drew should be conducted in less than a week to ensure that results of positive tests can be discussed promptly with a survivor. And treatment can be started if it wasn't given at the first visit to you. And any sort of special follow-ups for infections can be arranged, like to infectious disease clinics or other stuff like that. Yeah, so if initial tests are negative and treatment was not provided, examination for STDs or STIs can be repeated one to two weeks after the assault. Repeat testing detects infectious organisms that might not have reached sufficient concentrations to produce positive test results at the time of initial examination. So, eh, you know, we have to deal with that doubt as well. For survivors who are treated during the initial visit, regardless of whether testing was performed, post-treatment testing should be conducted only if the person reports having symptoms. If initial test results were negative and the infection in the assailant cannot be ruled out, serological testing for syphilis, um, for example, if ordered, which frequently is something we do as an add-on, um, can be repeated four to six weeks and three months. HIV testing can be repeated at six weeks and three months by using methods to identify, of course, um, acute HIV. HIV PEP is also very tricky. So we're gonna sort of end with that here, Mike. Assess for the risk for HIV infection um, in the assailant and the test and test that person for HIV whenever possible. All this uh, algorithms, decision points here are on the CDC website to evaluate the survivor, the victim for the need for HIV PEP. Not everyone necessarily needs to have it. Bring it up with the patient's visit. Just refer to it before you walk into the room. Be familiar with the latest protocols. And if you're not quite sure what to do in the moment, consult with a specialist in HIV treatment like infectious disease or the same nurse if you're considering PEP. Yeah. I mean, we could go through all the medications. We've gone over it on previous shows for HIV and um, PEP, but really if you have a patient that's needing this, you need to print out the algorithm and look at it because it's a step-by-step -step process and there need to be more um, uh, people involved, essentially, infectious disease, say nurse, all of that if need be. 
There's also an interesting page on the CDC site for patients, a one sheet about PEP 101 that breaks this down for patients. It is in English and in Spanish, and I urge you to print it off and give it to your patients. There's also a hotline for consultation for clinicians. It's called the PEP line. And the number for that, Mike? Yeah, so it's one 888 4911. I'm probably going to plug that into my phone as soon as we're done recording today. Just that's going to be handy to have in case I need it. And that is open uh, from 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern time, even late enough for some of you night shifters like me. Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to the next segment. Uh, we know this was not an easy one, and we appreciate your listenership on that subject. Okay, before we get Rick and Jim on this conversation in regards to legal blood draws, let's talk a little bit about uh, our men and women in blue. I want to start off this first segment by discussing something that might be important to your practice for a variety of reasons. And I want to talk about the patient that comes in escorted by the police and touch upon a few things that really should happen when you have an officer in your department or several officers with a patient that needs to be detained after they are medically cleared by you. We should also mention things that are necessary to do in the emergency department, things that maybe are unnecessary or even unethical, and ones that may get you into trouble. And finally, we have Dr. Rick Bucata weigh in on some medical legal aspects with Dr. Jim Roberts on blood draws in the ER. I personally feel a lot of affinity with police officers. You know, a lot of them are former military like me, and so we have a lot of shared experiences, which can make things easier sometimes. But it can make things harder, too, if you have a closeness with somebody and you get into some kind of ethical uh, deep waters here. You know, we all know when we see officers in an apartment, as much as they hopefully have a good relationship with us and they're happy that they're here, they don't want to be there. Most of the times they're bringing in patients who have uh, some sort of psychiatric need. Maybe they're drunk and disorderly. Maybe they are complaining of potential medical emergency, like maybe needing a medication before they go to jail or perhaps there was an injury during the detention process or things like that. And the most important thing you need to focus on is seeing these patients relatively quickly while at the same time, not just papering over potentially emergent issues and allowing our officers to get back out there where they need to be and not in the hospital. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right, Mike. The last time I took care of a patient who needed to be medically cleared before going to jail, I noted a couple of things in this case. So this is an easy one. The ones we talk about with blood alcohol at the end are not going to be as easy. Um, but it, it really depends on your level of comfort when you see these patients and whether or not you think this patient needs what they say they need. I was working in triage and I noticed that this officer had been doing wall time on a patient for about two hours. And I went up to him and I said, uh, what's the patient here for? The patient immediately interrupted me, said that the officer shook him down, turned out all his pockets, and made him lose his Suboxone dose. So regardless of whether this is true or not, I had to figure out if this patient was actually on Suboxone, um, or was he just trying to kill time before he went to jail? So you'll find that there are patients that don't have huge medical complaints or issues. Um, maybe they just come in, they want a meal, they want some drugs, maybe a hug before they get taken off to the cell. And you know, most of the time, I'll give him one of those things. It's usually the hug, isn't it? I'll let you, uh, <laughs> I'll let you keep that one in limbo. Got it. All right. Unanswered. But there are patients that come in that do have a true medical emergency. It's impossible to have ignored 
many of the recent layperson police interactions in the news that have become national news stories and led to a lot of conflict and even civil unrest in many of our areas. And, you know, for every one of those cases, there are millions of layperson police interactions that don't make the news. Sometimes force is used. When force is used and emotions run high, people can get legitimately injured. Uh, patients also with comorbidities or complicated histories with recreational drug use can go through stressful events and suffer cardiac arrest, respiratory distress, like an asthma attack, or even just a simple panic attack that needs some degree of attention. Sometimes the stories from the patient and the officer may conflict, like you were pointing towards with that Suboxone story. Our job isn't to recon uh, you know, reconcile these conflicts or decide whether something that happened that we weren't a witness to was right or wrong. Regardless of what anyone tells you, your job is to do a medical screening and treat them as if they were any other patient. And you would act just as kind and cool and complete and ethical as you would for anybody else that came right. in off the streets. 100%. And, and you know, like giving somebody hydroxyzine or maybe lorazepam for acute panic, as long as they're not contraindicated, it's not the worst thing in the world before sending them to jail. And it may even result in less problems for the patient and the officer if the patient's a little more relaxed. Right. And I know we don't have Jim um, right on the call right here, but maybe later I can remind him to tell us about his pieces that he's written on excited delirium. And a lot of these patients, you know, you've got eight people trying to hold down this one patient and a lot of complications can ensue after that. But I, I digress. Let's hold that for later. The first thing I want to do when I have a patient like this one that came in for the Suboxone is talk to them. I calmly, politely ask them what happened, what brought them to the emergency department. And I really try to dissuade them from discussing their illegal conduct, um, unless truly important. And then I often excuse the officer to do my exam and ask more private questions because I don't know the situation I don't know this patient's history, and I want them to be honest with me during my evaluation. It's important to assess, you know, visual cues and other cues about whether the patient may be too unruly to be seen alone by you. You know, you can certainly bring in a coworker or a chaperone, but consider avoiding bringing in the police officer like Martha's suggesting, unless it's truly unsafe, because, you know, that can kind of... Um, make the patient a little bit less um, forthcoming. I can right. appreciate that the dynamics of the situation are different if you're, you know, 6'1", 270 pounds on a good day like me, or if you're built or otherwise trained differently, you're going to have to be the judge of your own situation. When it comes to these patients, you're going to want to err on the side of caution, to be honest, and always have an unobstructed path to the door. Avoid putting the patient or other things between you and the exit. That's really great advice. You know, Mike, I always forget about that. That's that's something super important. You always need to have a way out. Um, and I use that uh, pretty much wherever I go, not just at work, just, just even at the Olive Garden. So 7-Eleven, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right. So really important here, full physical exams and a detailed examination are extremely important. These patients have probably already had some physical frisking and searching. Um, if the patient is complaining of unnecessary force or that the officer has caused them bodily harm, you're going to want to take extra precautions, do a skin evaluation, have the patient walk, talk, move all their extremities, do a full neurological exam, 
document all your objective findings, super important, keep it clean, concise, um, right to the point. Sometimes I'll take photos and put them in the chart. That's fine. If you have Haiku and you use Epic, that's certainly a new great technological advance you could do. If an officer wants to take their own photos, you should be aware that this is also allowed. And then you'll need to chart everything in detail. That's, that's all I can tell you is if you didn't chart it, you didn't do it. And it might be a summary of what happened legally down the road. So after your physical exam is finished, you can go and discuss the situation with the officer, um, but you do not need to tell that officer anything about that patient's medical history, what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. It's actually completely separate. It's not, it's not anything that they need to know about. So we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But in this particular case, I looked up the patient, found that he was in a Suboxone clinic. He's on the dose that he said he was on. I gave him a Suboxone and he was discharged, went to jail. There's going to be other cases where parents are there, uh, sorry, patients are there for psychiatric complaints. And these patients may need a little bit different attention beyond just a musculoskeletal and neurologic exam. Yeah, a lot of jails have medical facilities and medical providers on site, often a PA or a nurse practitioner, and they can take care of patients once they're safely discharged. They don't need any emergency care, and they can just be monitored for emergency events in that facility. Um, some jails even have like radiology departments, recovery suites, things like that for patients who could have been involved in a scuff up or have any sort of other injuries. It's also important to give the patient discharge information, you know, a discussion with the patient. Uh, often you're giving the paperwork to the officers as far as what's going on here. So it's communicated, it gets back to the jail, to any sort of caregiver at the jail, what the patient may need, what you saw them for uh, broadly. So that if they're detained for a long period of time, that if they need antibiotics, let's say, or pain medication, other things like that. So that's, that's communicated there. In the end, you're not the primary care practitioner here. You're not managing someone's eczema necessarily or, you know, a full plan of care for their chronic medical issues. You're screening for emergent medical issues and you're discharging. Yeah. So Mike, I would say the next time you're at work, go in there and find out what your hospital policy is for patients that are escorted by police. It's really important. Um, actually, one of the policies at one of my previous hospitals was that we don't actually hand discharge paperwork directly to the officer. We have mm. to put it in a concealed envelope um, that can only be given and opened by the next medical team that looks at it. So there's a lot of stuff there um, yeah. and it gets complex. But I mean, you know, I had a patient that was detained and needed augmented from his German shepherd dog bite. And just because that dog was also in blue in uniform, it doesn't mean that that dog doesn't carry pastorella. So he needed treatment for that, right? So there are patients that come in, they're involved. We're going to switch uh, gears here. We'll get Rick and uh, Jim in on a second. Um, but basically, what do we do when we have a DUI or an alcohol-related arrest? These are way more complicated. They can be way more difficult to handle. And these cases are concerning. I like to watch some of these really drunk people for a while, make sure that they don't do anything stupid, make sure nothing bad happens. Um, you don't want that 19 year old girl who just got arrested aspirating in her cell or tripping and falling and then blaming the police for her injury. And I think the literature is littered with cases where it's assumed the patient is intoxicated, but they actually had some sort of organic medical issue going on and it was just not recognized by the treating clinician. You know, uh, one big question that is uh, doesn't, I don't think, have a, a correct answer. Do you get a blood alcohol level or other, you know, toxicology screening, whether it's drug testing or whatever, 
on a patient that's there that police say is there for acute alcohol or other recreational drug intoxication. Right. So I wanted to kind of go through some of the laws and regulations here behind this before we get some expert opinion. Essentially, if you wouldn't do an alcohol level on any other patient that's being brought in, just because this one is arrested, then you're not doing the the test or the alcohol level. I mean, you have to, again, try to remove that that police sort of uh, push. Um, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute. I want to I want to draw my own blood and keep it separate from any blood that might be requested or required by police. So a legal blood draw, in short, is none of my business if it's ordered by the police and they have a warrant. I care about the medical welfare of the patient. Um, You know, so this this gets a little tricky. Mike, why don't you talk about this uh, 2019 study here in regards Uh, to... I know we all get the Journal of Missouri Medicine, you know, monthly, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there is, I'll, I'll direct you back. We'll all remember the t- 2019 study in that journal titled Mandatory Blood Testing. And it talks about, you know, when can a police compel a health provider to draw a patient's blood to determine blood alcohol levels or levels of other intoxicants? So when can, when can we as clinicians be forced, so to speak, by police to do this? So here are some stats to set the background here. In 2017, 304 of the 930 motor vehicle traffic fatalities in the state of Missouri were alcohol-related. That's one out of three, basically. Uh, That's terrible. During that same year, there were almost 13,000 alcohol-related traffic fatalities nationwide. So it's a big deal for legislators. It's a big deal for law enforcement. It's a big deal for the healthcare system as well. We all, you know, play a part here with this problem. To quote the authors of this piece in Missouri Medicine, unfortunately, while providers undoubtedly support the cause, the approach taken in many states has created some tension between the legal and the medical world. Yeah, it it gets a little gray. So I think if a patient refuses... Um, consent to do these tests, it's going to cause some issues. I mean, if a patient says, sure, take my blood, no problem. Hey, um, that is fine. But the clinician, um, if the patient does not give consent, is sort of left in this ethical gray zone with potentially serious legal implications. A question presented to the clinician might be, am I required to perform a blood draw? And um, in all seriousness, we probably do remember the case of Alex Wibbles. She was an ER nurse at the University of Utah, and she became, um, again, a nationwide uh, story here. We saw on YouTube or other videos of the incident where this nurse was arrested by the police officer on scene for not obtaining the blood draw when the police asked her to. So a reminder of the details here. So Salt Lake City Detective Jeff Payne brought an unconscious patient. He was a a semi-truck driver and was in a motor vehicle accident to the emergency department. The patient was not under arrest, but Detective Payne told Wobbles that he wanted to take blood sample to determine whether or not the patient was impaired. Nurse Wobbles refused calmly, citing internal policy that required either an arrest or a warrant to draw blood from an unconscious patient. Payne came back by explaining Utah law and saying under Utah law, a blood draw was appropriate under the circumstances. 
this kind of boiled over and it ended with Payne handcuffing Nurse Wobble and bringing her out, forcibly removing her from the emergency department for failure to comply with these directions. Now, this later went on to court. Nurse Wobbles won the legal battle. She was allowed to refuse this, and Detective Payne was ultimately fired for this incident. Yeah, so um, I just, you know, Mike, I want to skip down to the laws in California here. Yep. I want to I kind of just run through some of this so that our listeners get an idea of of what's allowed, what's not allowed, what might be a, a gray zone. And then and then we're going to bring Rick and Jim on to see uh, if they can help provide some clarity here. So I feel like we're mixing apples and oranges when we talk about the laws in California because we are citizens doing our job and the police officers are essentially a different entity. And then things kind of get mixed in these situations. The California law is relatively clear in regards to blood testing and granting of consent. First, the laws uh, say that police get to enforce as Title 17 in California, that all DUI blood tests are conducted by a trained medic in a hospital environment, along with other stipulations on how the government is to conduct such tests. So the first one, Mike, being... Right. So one issue, one concern, of course, is the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. All American citizens are protected under the Fourth Amendment from the unlawful searches and seizures. And that's a lot of loaded language there, intentionally kind of like unclear what, what is an unlawful search and seizure, right? A warrant needs to be produced for the above search and seizure situations and may only be granted upon probable cause. So, but then there's this other portion of vehicle code 13384, California's implied consent law. If you have a California driver's license, and this is not the case in all states, that you've basically already given consent to, quote, testing of substances if caught drunk driving. And this is not the case, like I said, in other states. In California, all drivers with a state-issued license are required to submit to written consent to the testing or drug or alcohol if found under lawful arrest for driving under the influence. And this can be done via chemical, blood, breath, or urine testing. And this is our implied consent law here. But the Fourth Amendment does slightly influence this law. The Fourth Amendment becomes violated when no warrant is presented when attempting to draw blood from a DUI suspect. So there are legal repercussions for refusing to submit, such as possibly a fine, imprisonment, or suspension of the license. So this is where it gets kind of confusing. Right. And so that's just to be clear. So that's, that's the driver refusing to submit to the blood or otherwise testing here. Right. So speaking of that, right, the choice between getting a blood test or a breath test, any driver arrested in California for driving under the influence has a choice of taking a blood test or a breath test. The police officer's responsibility is to tell, remind the driver of this choice. If no blood or breath test is available in the particular situation, a urine test can be used as well. Right, if right. the police officer suspects that the driver is under the influence of not only alcohol, but drugs as well, and the driver chooses the breath test, a blood sample may also be required to test for the presence of drugs. Right. So, you know, if someone says I'm a Jehovah's Witness and I can't I can't give you any any blood. Yeah, well, we can get your pee, right? That, that's not so, how that works, is it? Is it they just can't get blood? Yep, that's how it works. Um, oh, okay. 
Uh, I, you know what? I don't really know, to be honest with you, that that is something we should bring up on a future shows. Um, but there are a few exceptions to California's implied consent laws regarding owning a driver's license. In fact, even if a person is dead or unconscious, they are still considered to have not have withdrawn their consent. So people who experience heart conditions and other blood conditions, we talked about hemophilia. We did the exceptions for the blood testing. In this case, they submit a urine test. But lastly, let's talk about police communication. Right. So like we mentioned, the officer has some responsibilities here. The officer conducting the arrest carries the responsibility to communicate that the individual under arrest is not entitled to an attorney before certain procedures are carried out. So, you know, yes, you can get an attorney for other things, but um, in terms of stating whether they're going to submit to a drug test, determining which drug test they're going to take, something during the administration of the test they are not entitled to attorney at that stage. I, I know we're just talking about California law here, but I think it still does highlight questions about like, hopefully it's first questions to you of like, huh, I wonder what my state says about these situations. Yeah, so let's go, let's just go through like a couple of um, examples here real quick. And then I'm gonna unleash the doctors. Oh, so <laughs> law enforcement wants the results on a patient who already is undergoing treatment in the ED, Mike. Sometimes the emergency clinician already ordered blood alcohol levels for clinical reasons. In this situation, Mike, we- Yeah, uh, exactly. So you don't, like we talked about, there's there's separation here. You don't release the results to the police, prosecuting attorney, or any other person, unless the patient says it's okay, or the court order is provided. Right. Now, how about this? When law enforcement wants the results, but the clinician, you did not order it as part of the patient's workup because you just really weren't interested or had any sort of clinical need to obtain these drug or alcohol testings here. The situation also requires either the patient's consent or a court order. When law enforcement wants the test run, but you don't need to obtain that as part of your, your clinical workup here, this is when the courts have to get involved or the patient has to say, okay, police, you can have my uh, you know, blood or urine or what have you. Yeah. So, and then what about law enforcement brings an individual specifically requesting that the ED providers draw that individual's blood for testing. Again, it requires either consent or court order. You know, there are times when patients don't give consent um, and police have to get this court order. Um, it's just so much easier when patients are cooperative, but as we know, that's not the way. So what does this mean for us in the ER? So to, to quote Corey Slovis, okay, he's the professor and chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Vanderbilt. Most people and he says, EPs included, would agree that intoxicated drivers who kill innocent people should go to jail. But we are obliged to take care of patients. Okay, we're obligated. Not serve as law enforcement agents. He continues to go on by saying patients have rights regardless of the suffering, damage, or deaths that they have caused. Um, but if, um, emergency department clinicians should not draw blood unless the patient agrees to it, or is there a legal binding court order to do so. Finally, he says, because most of us are not lawyers, it usually is best to wait until the hospital attorney confirms that the police officer's document is in fact a court-ordered evidence request that should be honored. Now, I know Rick and Jim, you're chopping at the bit to get on here. Um, we know that uh, both of you are godfathers of this particular topic, medical legal stuff here. Uh, Rick, he's been doing risk management monthly and helping us learn about legal issues in medicine and nursing for years. Um, quick little intro for Rick. That's right, Rick Bucata. 
We are very happy to have you here. If you're into medical podcasts, we've told you before that Rick was the original medical podcaster on tapes, and he has taken emergency medicine education to the next level. He is one of the founding fathers of our genre, and he and Dr. Jerry Hoffman were basically podcasting before it even existed, so before the internet existed. <laughs> Rick, Rick is the creator and director of the Center for Medical Education, our CCME program, and he is the lead physician and lead faculty instructor. And he started this from the very beginning. We're very happy to have him, and uh, he's a good dude. All right. And Dr. Jim Roberts, I'll introduce him. He is a fellow in medical toxicology and emergency medicine. He is one of our original CME faculty members, and he's been lecturing around the country for 40 years. He is the Roberts of Roberts and Hedges, the Clinical Procedures in Emergency Medicine textbook, one of the first emergency physicians in the country, founding member of EMRA, distinguished professor, nominated as one of the best doctors in the country multiple times, uh, chairman of the board, still, I think, for Emergency Medicine News, he at least still writes a column, and uh, I really want to highlight his most recent column, which is kind of like a nice look back over the past 20 years of his emergency medicine, or I guess more than 20 years 40. plus. 40 years of emergency medicine career, great recent column looking back, um, but this is Dr. Jim Roberts. Hello, Jim. We just need to get you unmuted there. <laughs> He's coming. I think we dated both of these guys uh, well enough <laughs> at this point, but they're so wise and sage. Am I on now? Yes. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Hello, guys. Hello, Rick. Hi. Good to see you. So we have just said a lot. We said a mouthful. We kind of threw a bunch of things out there. And the first question I want to ask you, Rick, is um, what are your thoughts on this matter? I think it's uh, easier than you think, uh, or, you, or you've, you, it's not as befuddling as you think, because those patients are there for your uh, attention. They are your patients. They are... Um, under your care, uh, you are not an agent of the police department. Uh, you do not need to uh, consent to draw their blood. Um, if they consent, that's great. But if they don't consent, uh, you can't draw their blood because they're your patient. And it doesn't matter what the cops say or do or, you know, what uh, cajole or, you know, and the other thing too is blood needs to be done in a kind of a specific way so that it is there's a chain of evidence. If the chain is broken, some attorney is going to basically challenge the results of that test anyway. So um, my, my view, my belief is uh, you don't have to do it. If, if, uh, and in fact, you probably ought not do it uh, because it's not in your patient's best interest necessarily. It's got nothing to do with the medical reason that they're there. You're going to take care of the medical reason that they're there. And, you, and you're collecting evidence and that's not your job and you don't have to. And there's no paperwork that they can hand you that says you do need to do that. That's my uh, view based on, you know, some of the re writings of um, some of the uh, MDJDs that I've listened to. Now I may be wrong, frankly, but I doubt it. <laughs> Jim, what do you think here? Uh, I think it's much more complicated than Rick seems to think. Uh, first of all, doctors are people. And if a guy runs over a three-year-old because he's drunk and kills her, 
a lot of doctors are going to have a little bit of sympathy for that for that case, and he may, in fact, sort of push the envelope a little bit more and you know and do something he wouldn't do if it were a you know twenty year old that just ran into a telephone pole. Um, I don't think most physicians understand what the laws are in their state. Uh, and uh, the California law to me is, is uninterpretable. It says that if you get your driver's license in California, you are admitting that you'll, you'll get, that you get your blood drawn. So it says nothing about any other, any other circumstances. Yet this uh, <clears throat> Title 17 says you have to have a, a court order. Now, I don't know, Rick, what's the deal there? It's, Two different laws. I don't think uh, citizens can be ordered to do anything. Uh, well, that, that's the fundamental issue here. The other thing is, is that um, if you if you start saying, "Well, I think that I want to prosecute, help prosecute this guy for what he did," I think you're crossing the line. Uh, your job is to take care of the patient. Period. Uh, to uh, and blood alcohols that that may result in uh, the person being incarcerated or something like that. That's not your affair. And I would say, no, I, I really can't do that because it's not indicated medically. And even if you do a medical blood alcohol, you know, is that going to follow all of the steps in terms of the chain of, of command uh, or chain of whatever evidence? So Rick, that's an interesting uh, concept here, right? So if you take your own alcohol blood level, as we've already said, the that alcohol level doesn't get translated to the police officers. You don't tell them the patient's blood alcohol level, at least you shouldn't. Um, and second of all, it's your internal hospital, uh, no chain of command through officers at all. That that blood alcohol level doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's just what you're using for your clinical workup and decision-making. Now, that does bring me to the fact that if a police officer comes in and hands you a warrant and says, draw this blood, do a legal blood draw, in the state of Virginia, when I used to work, okay, you had a certification to do legal blood draws in the emergency department as a bedside nurse. So uh, one of the officers could find any one of those nurses that was on duty that night. She would go in, she'd look at the order. The patient um, would uh, give their blood using the warrant. And that nurse, you know, may or may not have been involved in the case any other way, but they had to do it a special way. They had to be trained. You're going to so, hold the patient down if they don't want it? If there's a you're warrant. Gonna, are you going to restrain the patient? Are you that, going to? Yep, that's what they did. Yeah, well, that, I think that that's pretty nuts, and I wouldn't, I would not do it. I would just go to jail. Going to jail will probably be be better than the ship that you're on. <laughs> we need you in July. Can you not make any of these decisions at least for the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that uh, you know, I'm not familiar with Virginia law. I maybe you have to be familiar with the laws in your state, but I think there's these fundamental rights of, of not incriminating yourself and those kinds of things, which are constitutional. I, I think that um, I would, honestly, I would go to jail. I think it's our situation where, I mean, if, if the, if there is probable cause and the, the officer has gone to the trouble of obtaining the warrant and the officers are going to provide their own method of restraining the patient here. I feel like, again, you've got to know your local laws here, but, but we do this all the time in Texas, you know, often the patient comes in, 
they're here for a legal blood draw. And it's kind of like the clinician doesn't even get involved. I don't open a chart on that patient. Um, I never see them. The patient goes in the back with the officer and someone draws their, it really has nothing to do with me. Well, you ought to keep them out of the ER then and just send them directly to the lab. If you bring them into the ER, you get into this issue about, well, uh, has a medical screening examination been done on this person or, uh, and it, because if not, you got a place where you can do outpatient uh, blood draws all the time. Patients are going to your lab for outpatient blood draws. Let them go there. Do not contaminate this situation by bringing them into the ER. I think it would behoove the, the clinician <clears throat> when they first, first start to work in a place uh, or you know, once they've been there, they need to get a written document authored by the hospital, and the attorneys, and, and given to all the physicians as to what the issues are here. What do you do, one, when the police ask you to draw blood? I Two, agree. The, the, the police don't have a warrant. The police have a warrant. Uh, the patient is unconscious. Uh, can you draw blood if the officer asks you for it? I think if you have an unconscious patient, it's medically legal. Uh, it's, um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's necessary for the evaluation of the patient. Um, if they're unconscious, they get those drugs and alcohol levels. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Jim. Why are we not getting that test in an unconscious patient? I mean, no one has to force me to do that workup. We are, but the record, it'll go into the medical record and they can subpoena the medical record. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, the, any, any alcohol that you draw as part of your medical workup is, can be uh, subpoenaed by the courts as a legal alcohol. Doesn't have to be drawn with a consent. Uh, if it's in the hospital chart, you're, you're allowed to have it. Yeah, you did it for a medical reason. You didn't do it for drawing uh, evidence. It may be evidence, uh, as well, but it's you were doing it because you had no idea why was this person solely out because of the alcohol, or were there other things going on like his subdural or something like that? You know, but, I I gotta tell you though, why do we give so much care to drawing alcohol levels? Who cares? Get an alcohol level. Get an alcohol level. Why is it that people are like, no, I don't do alcohol levels. No, that's not something I do. It's going to change everything. Like, I don't want that in the chart. Why can't you just get an alcohol level? Who cares? What's the big deal? What, are you serious? I'm serious. This is California, man. <laughs> people got rights here. <laughs> this is not Texas, for crying out loud. It's not I mean, a third there, world country. There's always going to be a particular clinical reason that you could say i got this alcohol level or i got this I, I drug think that level that's total bs you that know person's that. A, that person's acting a little bit funny that person has a headache i can't explain it is he oh, drunk i don't know i'm just saying i don't think it's wrong i, I think that a good attorney will say uh will, will take that uh, apart a little bit and say do you normally get alcohol levels on somebody who has a headache it depends you know, on the headache you, oh yeah, yeah right okay not, that's not the, the doctors or nurses' job uh, to, to find out whether it was indicated or not. It's indicated medically, uh, fine. Not indicated medically, don't do it. So, Jim, what about that case uh, that you talked about years ago of the patient? Um, I know I can't remember if they drew a blood alcohol level on the patient or not, but they went outside the hospital and they were hit by a car. And what happened with that case? Well, the question, the question is about patients refusing alcohol levels and leaving the hospital. First of all, 
no, no, no person who's there for, for a reason such as that should have ready access to a door. You know, if they're talking the police in there, uh, they're gonna grab, either grab their gun or they're gonna run out the door. And now you have a person who's running out there, maybe drunk or drunk. Uh, if they refuse the alcohol level and you think they're intoxicated or impaired, they should not be allowed to leave the hospital alone. They shouldn't be allowed, no matter what the level is. Um, in this yeah, they... case, the, the patient you know, was obviously drunk. He said, oh, I'm not going to have my blood alcohol level. The doctor went to go to the bathroom, so like the guy runs out the door and gets hit by a Philadelphia bus. And I think he was killed. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the case came down to the doc doctor was at fault for letting him go in an intoxicated state. That's basically it. You can't allow an intoxic intoxicated person to leave your hospital alone. Yeah, once you've lost the capacity to make a decision based on your uh, assessment of a patient, uh, they're yours. Uh, they can't go. Uh, they basically have to be uh, held in the department. And one of the ways, um, you know, you don't want to get necessarily, you know, four point restraints on this person. But there are ways to do uh, encourage people to stay who want to go home, like you know, just take their clothes. Most people aren't going to leave naked, you know, uh, or uh, the, the, yes, you are absolutely responsible for a person who has not, does not have the capacity to make a, uh, a reasonable decision. And your judgment as to whether they have capacity or not is based on your uh, clinical experience as a, as a physician, PA and P uh, and, it's a matter of judgment. I mean, it's not like we don't issue them an IQ test or something like that. Um, in my professional judgment, this patient was impaired to the point where he was incapable of making uh, sound judgments on their behalf. Sounds right, pretty good to me. If they're not arrested, you can't just let them go. Well, some states you can't, uh, there are some, a few wacko states that say you can't hold people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think what you want, somewhere in the Northeast. It was, uh, that was the case. But, you know, in general, the thing to do is that is the right thing to do. I mean, you know, if you, if you, what jury is going to um, get upset at you because you let some drunk guy go out and now he got hit by a bus. And you can say, well, I had to let him go. You know, of course that's ridiculous. Now we I, do actually have, we, we've had this issue in our emergency department in Texas a couple of times where someone obviously intoxicated, not having capacity to consent or, or really like with it, we have the benefit of having an officer in the department, you know, pretty much at all times. And so what we'll do is, hey, we can't keep them here. If they want to go, they go. However, one step behind them is the officer. And the second they put uh, you know, foot on ground outside the hospital, they're arrested for public intoxication or, or otherwise, and then the officer takes custody of them. So that's potentially one situation in where, hey, you know, yes, you know, medically you own them. However, you can't restrain them and you work closely with the uh, law enforcement and they can restrain somebody who is unsafe to themselves. Well, yeah, though, uh, you know, that might be in, in your place, but we don't have any cop at our place uh, to, to do that. So basically, you have to use your guile or uh, whatever it takes to make them to stay. 
Yeah, we are very fortunate to have a law enforcement on, on the property at all times. Yeah. I think that uh, you do what's right and screw the law. <laughs> there you go. It took you a long enough time to come to that conclusion. You do what's right. What's right. Screw uh, the law. Which was Rick thinks is right is absolutely wrong. So. Uh... <laughs> oh, boy. So. You know, I realize you two have been actually you're you both have practice. I've grown up um, for our audience with both uh, Rick and Jim for 40 something years. I knew you when you were an OVA. Yeah, when when I was a fetus Um, before that. (laughs) But the point is, you have such a dramatic difference of opinion on medicine, nursing, the care system uh, in many ways. I do. You do. You have a lot of things you disagree on, but at the same time, you always agree on the fact that we need to do what's right for the patient. And I think at the end of the day, both of you and Mike and myself, we care about the patient. And for our listeners, we want them to do their exam. We want them to respect their person. We want them to respect that patient's medical history. We care about their legal rights. We do. We want them, if it were us, or a family member, we would want the same for them. Right. It's always the answer to a question related to policy. What would I want for my own family? That always gives you the right answer. Yeah, and that's not allowing a junk person to leave the hospital. Exactly, exactly. In his car and drive to your neighborhood. Yeah, that's- You might endanger somebody else. Uh, You know, that's just a a no-brainer. They can't go. Yeah, but as far as doing the blood alcohol draw, you know, we urge you to take a look at the cases in the news and the history with this nurse that was arrested, Wobbles, and what happened with her. Um, and if someone demands you to do a blood test, you don't have to do it. Well, you know, you have to remember, too, that the case, that case, the cops asked the nurse to draw a blood alcohol on the victim of the uh, accident, not the causer of the accident. And she refused. And the nice part about refusing is she got out of her shift and she made half a million dollars. <laughs> you know, what, what more could you want? That sounds great. That, actually. That's what, I think that's what the settlement was for the state of for the city of uh, Salt Lake. Good work. That was really quick too. fast 500,000, you know, easy, easy money, easy Jim- money. Jim, do you have any other thoughts? Um, I mean, you worked very early on in Philadelphia with the police. It was just you mm. in that little lobby of a hospital in Philadelphia. Um, your cops were your basically like your right-hand man. I mean. Yeah, it- we wanted to stay friendly, friendly with the cops. Yeah, you do. Because we lived in the neighborhood, you get, you get mugged going to your car. I think very important is your chart is your best friend or your worst enemy. Your chart has to say, that has to document why you did what you did. And you can never have too much. If somebody uh, wants to leave the hospital and you don't want them to do it because they're drunk, you write a two or three paragraph thing saying, he's wobbly, he's slurring his words. Uh, he doesn't know how to use a right. telephone. You know, just peed his pants. You know, this guy is incapable of safely leaving the hospital, you know, as opposed to, Patient wants to sign on AMA. But Jimmy, you and I are peeing our pants too, so that you can't go by that necessarily. <laughs> this podcast a new level. <laughs> no, I think it's pretty, pretty straightforward. There's some principles that guide this. Now, if your state is a little wacko, 
and says incapacitated people can go out on their own. Well, that makes no sense. And there have been all of these cases that people hear about, people going out and getting hit and getting hurt or if not killed. Why would you, why would you do anything like that? Frankly, even if it was the law that you hadn't let them go, I'd hold them. What are they going to do today? What are they going to do to you? You're a bad doctor because you let him, uh, let him. You didn't. You held him back, and he, he's going to say. I, and they all say, "I'm sue you." They all going to say, "I'm going to sue you." Somehow, when you're drunk, you get a, you get a legal uh, background, and you get get a, a degree in in law because they all know the law. I like to walk around and put post-it notes on people when they do that. That say, "Now I am a lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, what would you rather try to argue to the jury? That's the whole thing. That's it. Yeah. And you argue common sense that a normal person would agree with you. And it doesn't matter what the cops say, what the patient says, you know, your chart backs up what you say. And you make it so if your mother were reading that chart, you say, yeah, he did right. I don't care what the law is either. He did right. See, we finally came to an agreement. Hey, look at that. Love it. We well agree. <laughs> Well, with that being said, I want to thank you both for being here. We love having you on the show. It's been a it's been a hot minute, as we like to say. Um, and I really can't thank you enough for everything you've done over the last 100 years combined in emergency medicine. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Until next Martha. time. Mike, Thanks, guys. see you guys. See ya. All right, Mike, let's uh, let's end this podcast. I gosh, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to ruminate over. Oh, I don't even know. I need a nap actually after that. Well, let's just ruminate over the trivia question, I suppose, right? <laughs> we can go over who won our last one. Do you want to go over that one and I'll do uh, this month's? Sure, sure. So the question was, which of Newton's laws states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction? And in what year did Newton die? And the answer was the third law of motion. And we said it was questionable because we weren't sure if he died in 1726 or 1727. So we accepted both answers. And so the winner from last month's trivia is Dave Michelson, PA. Congrats, Dave. Nice job, uh, Dave, son of Michael. Way to go. So here is our two view trivia question this month. This month we're giving away half off of our July boot camp course. You got to come to the July one for this one. Um, you know, it can also, I suppose, if you really want to apply it to some sort of a self-study course or the acute care course as well, the emergency medicine and acute care course just dropped, by the way, the 2022 edition of that emergency medicine and acute care course going over practice changing literature for the past year. The new edition is out there, folks. You're going to want to get it. It's always a banger, always a good way to stay on top of things. Here is our two view trivia question for this. Now, it's always a two part answer. We talked earlier about how contact lens wearers can be susceptible to more serious eye infections. One we didn't mention was acanthamoeba. It's a parasitic infection. Here's our two-part question. The naming of acanthamoeba has a Greek origin. What's the Greek origin and translation into English? And in what year did the FDA recall a contact lens solution because of contamination with acanthamoeba? You're going to want to send in your answers to our email address. That is 
twoviewcast at gmail.com. It's the number two viewcast at gmail.com. Mike, I can't give you props for that question. Good job. It was your turn this month to find a good one. And I like it. So nailed it. Nailed it. All right. Well, so for more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses, including the one that's happening in July. You can go to www.ccme.org. And again, our next boot camp is July 25th through the 30th. Check out all of our programs, home study courses, farm course, heart course, EKG course, imaging boot camps, and more at ccme.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of, I suppose, the four of you today. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency, and it'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some Two View goodness like you are today. If you like YouTube and want to see me, Martha, Jim, Rick, the video version of the blog, search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube and you'll catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we referred to today. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett doing big duty today with all of us coming in today. Thank you guys. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you again for tuning in, friends in EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us on the two of you. Have a great day and a great shift. <laughs>